السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يحده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فإن أحسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وإن شر الأمور محتفاتها وكل محتفة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار To proceed then this is a continuation of the series of lessons which I began at the winter conference in Birmingham in uh, the Salafi Masjid and the theme of those lectures were centered around the methodology of the Salaf in establishing Tawheed and what we mean by this obviously is what is the methodology that Allah revealed in the Quran and by which he guided his messengers in order to call the people to Tawheed and to establish Tawheed by way of evidences which are both revealed, which is Sami'i, and which are rational, based upon reason, which is Aqli. And the, the, those lectures which I did, I did three lectures, and uh, part one, two, and three, and within those lectures, what we looked at, if I can just quickly uh, summarize the essence of what was discussed in those uh, three lectures, and you can return back to them, they are on uh, the website salafisounds.com. And um, within those lectures, uh, we established that the Qur'an being guidance to mankind, directing them to knowledge of Allah Azza wa Jal, and being a means by which Allah can establish his hujjah upon mankind, then it is necessary that within this Qur'an that there is guidance with respect to how the messengers established the proofs against the people to whom they were sent. And those evidences must be the most powerful the simplest, the easiest to understand, undeniable types of evidences. And that we as people who ascribe to the Qur'an, to the Sunnah, to the way of the messengers, to the way of the Salaf, that we must adhere to these types of evidences. Because just as Allah gave us guidance in every sphere of life, then it is inconceivable that he would not give us guidance with respect to how do we establish the truth, how do we establish his tawheed in the simplest, most powerful of ways, using arguments of reason and revelation. And so this is something which is necessary. We find in the Qur'an that the arguments of the messengers 
against their people to establish whether it be the existence of Allah, the wujud of Allah, the wujud of a Rabb, a creator, whether it be to establish his rububiyyah, tawheed al-rububiyyah, whether it be to establish his perfection and the complete absence of any deficiency, which is his tawheed of al asmai wa sifat his kamal, his perfect, you know, his, his kamal, his perfection, and the absence of any, any deficiency, or whether it be to establish his uluhiyyah. It is an absolute must. That these, are, that these affairs are established in the clearest of ways and with the clearest of evidences in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, which, are, which, are, which appeal to reason, which appeal to a person's aql. And the reason why this topic is important is because we made a contrast between the people who follow the books and the messengers in this topic and the people who basically say that the foundation is a person's reason that we begin with reason we begin with our own intelligence with our aql and using aql without resorting to the quran we devise arguments and evidences in order to prove allah exists and then to determine what allah can be and cannot be Right, so this approach here now is the approach of the people of Kalam. And they made tremendous mistakes in this field. And they also made tremendous mistakes in various subject areas of Aqeedah. In particular the names and attributes of Allah. And then this extended to other areas as well. In the affairs of Qadr, in the affairs of Iman. So this shows the seriousness and the greatness of this particular topic. So the messengers were sent to return the people to the fitrah. Nuh salam, the first messenger, was sent to return his people back to the fitrah. The fitrah is the natural inclination which every child, every human is born with to intrinsically know Allah, to know Allah innately and to want to worship Him because one perceives all of the clear, manifest favors and bounties that he or she experiences on a day-to-day basis, right? This is the natural state of, of, of a person, that they want to worship Allah because everything is so apparent, it's intrinsic, and they recognize the favors and bounties. And so people deviate from this after being misguided by shaitan, and due to a corruption in their aql, and due to jahl, due to ignorance, then they become misguided away from the fitrah and they take others as objects of worship alongside Allah So the messengers are sent in order to return people back to the fitrah. And so they do this by calling them back to Tawheed, by establishing the evidences for Tawheed and the necessity of worshipping Allah alone. And also after this, enjoining upon them to stick by Allah's commands and prohibitions. Why? Because in this there is benefit for them in this life and likewise in the next. So this is why the messengers are sent. And then when Allah sends the messengers with the goal of bringing people back to the fitrah and giving them laws and commands and prohibitions which are beneficial for them, when Allah sends messengers for this goal, He supports them. He supports them with 
signs, with ayat, as we mentioned previously, with, with, with signs, with barahin, with evidences, with hujaj, which are again arguments, proofs, and with dalail, which are indicators, and again evidences. And we see in the Qur'an then, that Allah brings these evidences by either using the creation around us, so Allah directs our attention to the fact that we, you know, we see the sun, we see the moon, we see the alternation of the night and the day, we see the water being moved across the land and bringing rain, animals in which we have benefit, you know, the stars, all these things are clear apparent signs. So Allah points to the created things to point to Himself the Creator. Using the created to point to the Creator. To show His Rububiyyah and to show His Uluhiyyah. So this is one thing that we see in the Qur'an by which Allah Azawajal, He supports His messengers. And the messengers use this, use this argument to then convey it to the people. They use the creation, the signs of Allah and the creation to point to Allah and to point to His Rububiyyah and His Uluhiyyah and, the, and to call people to worship, worship, to worship Him. And secondly, Allah Azawajal, He uses the signs also that we see in order to prove that his messengers are truthful. How do you know that the messengers of Allah are truthful? How do you know that the messenger Muhammad was truthful? And so in the Quran, there are arguments of reason by which Allah commanded his messenger to convey to his people, to prove that he is indeed a genuine, truthful messenger from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the point being that Allah azawajal, he aids and supports his messengers after sending them. After sending them with the goal of calling people back to worshipping Allah alone, he supports them like this with signs, with evidences, with hujaj, with baraheen. And he does this, and then we find this is manifested in two ways in the Qur'an. Number one, using created entities, created things around us to point to the existence of Allah and to his right to be worshipped alone. And number two, Signs and evidences that his messengers are genuine messengers who are truthful and who are indeed sent by Allah Azza wa Jal. So, so in those lectures, in the first three lectures, we then went through, because we said that there are four things we have to establish, Allah's existence, then proof that he alone is the Lord, the Rabb, then proof that he alone has all of the names and attributes of perfection, and then proof that he alone is worthy of worship. And in each of these four things, there are arguments of reason. Arguments of reason. The Qur'an appeals to a person's aql, to, 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 to a person's reason, uh, and, 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 and in order to convey each of these affairs. So with respect to Allah's existence, we discussed that in the, the first, second and third lectures, and we looked at the method of the Qur'an, and how the Qur'an use the signs which are apparent, which everybody can see, which are not hidden to any person upon the face of this earth. And in this there is wisdom. There is wisdom because if the signs were so detailed and intricate and about the hidden things about you know, Allah's creation, which you know, not many people can see and investigate and things like that, then, then Allah's hujjah would not be established upon the whole of mankind. Because Iman is not attainable except for a very small number of people. Right? And this is why 
sometimes often you see the, the atheists and you know people like that make an argument well, how come why isn't there in the Quran things that we know about you know uh, the universe today why isn't all this detail not because this this would this would make iman unattainable for the vast majority of people and the Quran and revelation is guidance for the whole of mankind and the signs of Allah should be such that no one should have any excuse that they should be apparent and open to everybody on the face of this earth, irrespective of his level of intelligence, in what age he lives in, right? Which is why that an Eskimo living somewhere, you know, wherever he lives, and someone living in the Amazon jungle, and someone living somewhere else in a, in a civilization, in a city, they are all equivalent, in the sense that they all witness and experience the alternation of the night and the day. They see the sun and the moon and the benefits of the sun and, and, and the moon. They experience the rain. They experience they have spouses in which they find comfort. Right? These are the types of ayat which are open, apparent ayat which everyone experiences no matter which time they live in, you know, which civilization they are in, what their level of intelligence is. No one has any excuse. Right? So we established in, in, in those lessons. Uh, the existence of Allah through the clear, apparent, manifest signs that we see all around us. And then we looked into some detail. Uh, we looked at some uh, speech from Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah, which is an extremely powerful, uh, rational argument that we can use to prove the existence of a creator. And basically it's along the lines that we first of all point out that within the creation around us, it is clearly evident that there are some attributes which are behind the creation. For example, knowledge, will, power and wisdom. This is evident when we think just about anything, any, we can choose any one thing. Whether we take the sun or the moon, or we take a tree for example, or we take an animal for example, or we take a human and his organs for example, we just take one issue. And from that we know that Whatever is behind this, that must have knowledge. There must be knowledge. There must be wisdom because there are goals and things are connected. There are causes and effects. You know, and there must be will, irada. There must be power. At minimum, we can deduce these attributes right, by looking at any one entity. But then, when we look at the whole of the creation, with all the millions and billions of things therein, then this increases the proof even further. Right? Meaning that it's undeniable that there is knowledge, will, power and wisdom behind the creation. Only an arrogant person will deny this. Even an atheist can't deny this. That, there, that, that, that there's, you know, there's some tremendous amount of knowledge, will, wisdom and power behind all of this. So the next question now is, where do we put these attributes? And this is where the, the fight really is now. So we as people of fitrah, people of intelligence, people of truthfulness, we say that attributes, these attributes must be found in a being. And this being is a creator, the Lord of the worlds. Right? And this is what we know from our practical experience as well. Right? When you find someone who's developed an invention, or he's manufactured something, and you look at that thing, and you say, well, from this thing, you know, I can see that this person, you know, uh, clearly this person had knowledge of certain things, he had a certain goal in mind be behind creating this thing, so he had wisdom. Clearly the choice 
that he had the irada, the will, from the way that it's made, and obviously the actual ability, that the qudra, to actually do this thing, put this thing into effect. We use this reasoning every day in our lives, right? It's something that you know, is, is undeniable, right? So then we use that same reasoning and say, well, behind all of this, there must be a creator. And this is where the attributes exist in a creator. This is what fitra demands, this is what reason demands, this is what common sense demands, right? To escape from this, then what the atheists do is they will take these attributes and they will put them somewhere else. And they will say, well, you know, it could be aliens, which, you know, really is just playing games and tricks because then you have to go one step back and go one step back. And so you can't really escape using that method. You have to keep going back, right? You're just trying to flee from the obvious and you you know or the only other way is to say well actually you put the attributes back into the created right so you take them from the creator and you put them back into the created which is nature so you say well and then you know they, they play games and word games and tricks in order in order to hide what they are doing right simply speaking what they are doing is that if if, if someone says well actually this bottle Clearly, it had a creator. What they're doing is, and this creator had knowledge, wisdom, power. They're taking those attributes and, and throwing them back onto the bottle. To avoid affirming the being or the thing that actually created the bottle. Right? This is the same thing what the atheists are doing. And then they have very clever, very, very clever technical methods as to how they do this. You know, with their theories and everything else. But in a nutshell, that is what is going on. So we mentioned in those lessons then... That the argument of Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah is a very solid, sound argument which is indicated in the Qur'an itself. It's the most powerful of arguments. And as for the arguments of, of those people, uh, you know, the, the weak arguments you know, who focus upon the universe having a beginning, those are weak arguments. Those are weak arguments built upon conjectures and speculations. And that's why Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah in one of his books called Huduth al-Alam, he said that it's not even necessary that we, that we prove the universe began in order to prove it has a creator. This is not even necessary. Rather, the method, the better method is that we first establish Allah's existence by way of his, you know, the signs around us. And from that we can deduce that the universe must have had a beginning. Meaning it comes afterwards, not the beginning. All right? So we established that in, in those lessons, in lesson number two. And in lesson number three, we then looked into the Qur'an and how it basically uses four or five different methods, uh, four or five different methods uh, in order to prove his creation, in, in order to prove that his creation indicates a creator. And uh, I'll mention them first of all, Al-Khalq wal-Ikhtira So Allah will point to a thing Let's say cattle or animals And indicate the aspect that, that he created them right? That they've been created Secondly Al-Inaya wal muwafaqa Which means that These things are Have, you know, that they've been created for a purpose and a wisdom So we'll mention the wisdom behind it Right, so the first is that he mentioned that he created it Secondly, he'll mention that there's a wisdom behind it. So he'll mention the wisdom. Like for example, he might mention about the animals, the cattle, that we have them to ride upon, that we have them to take food from, 
right? That we these benefits that we take from the things that Allah has created. So here Allah will mention the wisdom. Third thing would be that He will mention the angle of al-itqan, uh, al-itqan, what tadbir. So here now is the angle of precision. So for example, al-shamsu uh, wal-qamaru bi-husban. The sun and the moon are by precise calculation. So from this, Allah is indicating not that the, that the sun is created, which it is, but the angle here is slightly different. It's the angle of showing precision in things. So here now we look at the sun and the moon. We see the actual calculation of how the sun and the moon, they are in cycles. Everything is in cycles. The eclipses are in cycles. The day is in a cycle. Right? And this is all by calculation. We can look at that. We can understand that. We can observe that. So here this is another angle. The angle of Al-Itqan. Another angle uh, is from the angle of At-Tasheer. At-Tasheer. Which now is Allah subjecting things for our use. Subjecting things for our use. So we can take the sun again. This angle now is slightly different. The sun has been subjected for our benefit. Why? Because provides light, provides heat, it gives, you know, it's part and parcel of, of uh, plants growing and so on and so forth. So this now is from the angle of subjection, tasheer. It's the same thing. The sun, from the first angle, is created. From the second angle, al-inaya, it is, you know, it, it is, um, it, it works along with other causes in order to bring about its effects. The third angle, al-itqan, the sun has precise motion, calculated for it. The fourth angle, al-tasheer, it is subjugated for our use. And the fifth angle is uh, al-takhsis. This means uh, that there's something uh, specific, that things have a specific form that they are upon. Why is a human created the way the human is? Why is he walking on two legs, not on four legs? Right. Why are certain animals crawling on their bellies with no feet? Why do some? All of this is taqsis. It is everything has been created with a specific form which is more suitable to it, and this also indicates a creator. So when we look in all the verses of the Quran, when Allah alludes to things from His creation, then one of these five angles will be mentioned with respect to that thing. And this is what we find in the Quran, and this is why we see that we see uh, in the poetry, وَفِي كُلِّ شَيْءٍ لَهُ آيَةٌ تَدُلُّ عَلَى أَنَّهُ وَاحِدٌ. In every single thing, there is evidence that that He, meaning Allah, that He is one, that He is one. So everything points to Allah's existence in different ways, from different angles, from the angle of it being created, from the angle of it being subjected for for benefit. From the angle of being it having a very specific form that it has. From the angle that it is part and parcel of lots of other causes and effects that work together. They all work together as, 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 as a whole. So from all these angles, from the angle of precision, all of this, you know, we, we, we spoke about that in the third lesson that we had. So that was the first three lessons. Through that we established the, the Quranic way and the way of the messengers in establishing the existence of Allah the existence of a Lord, and the existence of a Creator. So that really deals with the first part, the existence. Now we move to the second part, which is where we're beginning today's lesson, which is lesson uh, part and before in the series then. 
And this is to now establish, once we've established that there is a creator, that there is a Lord, then what is the evidence that there is only one Lord and that he alone is the one who has these actions or these attributes of lordship, of creating, the one who creates, the one who gives life, the one who takes life, the one who owns everything, the one who regulates everything. These are the attributes of the Lord, the Rabb. So what is the evidence that there is only one Rabb? And there is only one Rabb, therefore, who deserves to be worshipped. So to discuss this, this is what we'll try and discuss in the remainder of this lesson, inshallah ta'ala. And so we'll begin with a brief introduction. And then there are actually three ayat, three verses in the Qur'an in which this topic is, is discussed. And we will look at each of those three verses, inshallah ta'ala. But first of all, introduction. When we say, al-rububiyyah, al-tawheed al-rububiyyah, then what do we mean by this? What do we mean by this? We mean by this that Allah Azawajal, huwa ifradullahi ta'ala, that Allah Azawajal is singled out bil khalq wal mulk wal tadbir. Bil khalq wal mulk wal tadbir. That Allah is singled out with creating, there's no creator besides Him, and with owning. He is the absolute owner of everything. There is no owner alongside him. And at tadbir that he alone, he regulates the whole of the creation. There is no one alongside him or with him who regulates and controls the creation. So this is what we mean. That when we say, Tawheed al-Rububiyyah, we mean that Allah is unique in these affairs and he has no partner in these affairs. So therefore, this indicates to us, where, where we are leading to, that what is the evidence of the Qur'an, what are the rational arguments in the Qur'an, that indeed, that Allah is alone in his rububiyyah. And once this is clearly established, then we can see from this, that Allah's rububiyyah, that we mean by this, his actions, as we've just mentioned, his actions of creating, his actions of regulating, these are tied to his will. Allah creates, Allah guides, Allah misguides, Allah gives life, Allah takes life. Right? These, are, these are his actions. And likewise, attributes which belong to his essence. So for example, Allah, uh, the, 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 the mulk, that Allah is the owner of everything. Likewise, his qayyumiyyah, that he's the one who, by, by whom everything else exists. By him, by, by him everything else exists. And his samadiyya, samadiyya meaning that he is not in need of anything. He's complete and perfect in all of his attributes. Self-subsistent, he's not in need of anything in order to make him, make him exist. So these are attributes of his essence. So what we're saying is that these are things that Allah is unique in. Nobody else has any share in these qualities or in these actions. And so we are looking to establish this by way of the clear evidences in the Qur'an. Now, we already know that the fitra already establishes this. This is already established in the fitra. We are speaking about arguments of reason. But in the fitra, this is already known. How is this known? Well, there are, well let's give two examples in the Qur'an. The first example in the Qur'an is for the existence of Allah 
and for his rububiyyah that he alone is the one, is what we see what Allah has mentioned in the Qur'an, that when a person is in a time of calamity and hardship, and is at the point of death, then we find that every person in his heart, there is the heart is trying to reach out to something, there's a hope, there's a desire, the heart is hoping in something that, 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 that will rescue that person or to remove that hardship or that calamity from that person. This is something that the heart of everyone feels in these kind of situations. And that's why in the Quran, Allah he points to this by saying, وَإِذَا مَسَّكُمُ الدُّرُّ فِي الْبَحْرِ ظَلَّ مَنْ تَدْعُونَ إِلَّا إِيَّاهِ Speaking about the mushrikun, that when they go on the ocean, and the ocean, you know, it, it becomes violent and it's about to topple them over, in that time they forget all of their deities that they used to worship on the land, and they call only upon Allah. Why? Because they know it's in their fitrah. Innately they know that nothing and no one can save them in this situation except Allah This is proof from the fitrah that there is only one Rabb and that only this Rabb, he is the creator, provider, the regulator who can actually save and deliver people. This now is evidence of fitrah. And this is found even with atheists who claim they don't even believe in a Lord. And this is because even with atheists, when they are about to perish, when the plane's about to crash, when they're about to drown in, in the ship or whatever it is, right? They might not necessarily call upon a deity or a god, but in their hearts, they, the hearts are, the, the, there's, there's a want and a need, and the heart is, you know, moving and hoping in something, whatever that thing might be. The fact that the heart is doing this after the person has realized that they are definitely going to perish, this is a proof that the hearts are actually, uh, you know, that, that, that they have been created to incline towards their Lord. It's just that they don't know that the heart is inclining towards their Lord because they deny this through, you know, through, through their faculties. But the heart feels and it just wishes that if only I could be saved and if something can come that can save me. And it you know moves and it uh, hopes. This is this is the so even with, 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 with you know with atheists they experience this type of thing as well. So this is the first evidence from the fitra, meaning something that's intrinsic to every person. This is not to do with using reason or arguments or anything like that. This is something intrinsic, right? That every person has. So this is an evidence that there is only one Lord who is the creator, provider, owner, and there's no one else besides him. Second evidence is something what is indicated in the story of Yusuf السلام, when he was in the prison. And when he was in the prison, you know that there were two uh, other prisoners who were there with him. And Yusuf السلام, he gave them da'wah and he called them to uh, tawheed. And the way he did that was with, 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 was with wisdom. And so one of the things that he said to them is, he asked them a question. He said, He said, Are multiple lords, multiple lords, variant lords, is that better? Or is it Allah Al-Wahid Al-Qahar? Is it just Allah who is the one and who is the compeller, the subduer? So here, this question that he asked to those two, two men, this was 
to remind them of their fitrah, to bring out their fitrah, and to make them realize that their originator and creator is only one. It can be only one. And that when there are multiple lords, multiple masters, this is not something which is good. Right? He's hinting at this uh, to them. That if you had multiple masters, multiple lords, and you are to serve each one of them, you know, conflicts and variation, is that better? Or the single lord who is Al-Wahid Al-Qahar. So the fitra knows that to have a single master and a single lord, that this is better. Clearly this is better. And this is something known by the fitra. So he's appealing to the fitra. So we know this that from fitra, the evidence from, from the angle of fitra already establishes that there is only one lord, and this lord is the creator, provider, sustainer, owner, regulator, and there is no one who shares with him in any of this. Right? This is known by the fitra. However, as you know, the messengers never came just to call the people to believe that there is one Lord, one creator, one provider. Because this is something that's in the fitrah already. And they came to call to something more than that, and something above that, and something beyond that. Something which belief in one creator, it necessitates that thing, which is that you worship only Allah alone. That you worship only Allah alone, which is uluhiyah, uluhiyah. So even though we are speaking now about this issue, about establishing that there is only one Lord, this is not really the goal of the messengers. Because this is already established in the fitrah. And when you look at the ayat in the Quran, you see that those ayat, they are really in relation to Allah's uluhiyah. Right? But at the same time, this does not mean that within those ayat, there is not an argument, there is not a rational argument establishing Allah's rububiyyah as well. Why? Because as you know, Allah's uluhiyah, right to be worshipped, within it is Allah's rububiyyah. It comprises Allah's rububiyyah. So when Allah uses an argument using uluhiyah, then automatically that also is an argument that incorporates rububiyyah as well. As we shall see and as will become clear when we come to look at those three verses that are mentioned which are arguments in this topic, right? So, uh, once all of this is clear, then we can start looking at these uh, three verses. And these three verses in the Qur'an, uh, we will see that all of them, uh, in fact two of them, they are mentioned in the context of refuting shirk, and refuting the people of shirk. Right, so they are in the context of uluhiyah. However, included within that is an argument for Allah's rububiyah that He alone is is uh, is alone in His rububiyah as well. So we need to think about these ayat and reflect upon them because they uh, they are uh, crucial to understanding the nature of the argument and the evidence that Allah uses against the people of shirk uh, and and you know the argument against them. So let's go to the first verse, the first of the three verses. And this verse is in Surah Al-Isra, Surah 17, verse number 42. In the ayah, in the ayah Allah Zawajal says, قُلْ لَوْ كَانَ مَعَهُ آلِهَةٌ كَمَا يَقُولُونَ إِذَا لَبْتَغَوْ إِلَى ذِي الْعَرْشِ سَبِيلًا The rough translation is, say, if there were other 
deities alongside him, alongside Allah, as they say, as they say, meaning as they claim, then indeed those deities would have sought a path towards the owner of the throne. Right? This is the, te- the, the rough translation of the ayah. That if there were other deities alongside Allah, if there were other deities alongside Allah, then they, meaning those deities, would have, as those people claim, then those deities would have sought a path towards the, own, the owner of the throne. Who is Allah Azza wa Jal, obviously. Now, before we speak about this verse and the argument in this verse, we need to understand the context in which it was revealed. This passage, the whole passage, is in relation to a group of the mushrikun, polytheists, and they claimed, falsely, that the angels are daughters of Allah. The angels are daughters of Allah. And after making this claim, they began to worship those angels. They took the angels as deities. So Allah in refuting them, he revealed this passage. And in this passage, Allah says, أَفَأَصْفَاكُمْ رَبُّكُمْ بِالْبَنِينَ وَاتَّخَذَ مِنَ الْمَلَائِكَةِ إِنَاثًا So first of all, Allah says, Has your Lord bestowed you with sons, and yet you ascribe to him that he has taken daughters as angels, angels as daughters. Right? So this is like an argument against them. And then he says, إِنَّكُمْ لَتَقُولُونَ قَوْلًا عَظِيمًا Indeed, you say a tremendous, a mighty thing. وَلَقَدْ صَرَّفْنَا فِي هَذَا الْقُرْآنِ لِيَذَّكَّرُوا وَمَا يَزِيدُهُمْ إِلَّا نُفُورًا and indeed, in this Quran, we have outlined every everything. We have, we, we have outlined things in this Quran that they may remember, but it only increases them in aversion. And this is where the verse comes now. Say, if there was with him deities, as they say, then they would have sought a means of neeness, a means of approach to the owner of the throne. Subhanahu wa ta'ala amma yaqulun uluwan kabira. Sublime is he, and lofty and exalted is he, above what they say with a mighty and with a great exaltation. So, as you can see, the verse itself has come in the context of refuting a group of people who took the angels as deities, they ascribed them to Allah as his daughters, and then they took them as deities that they worshipped besides Allah. Now, in order to understand how is this now an evidence which establishes Allah's rububiyyah, then we need to understand what exactly is meant in this verse by seeking a path. Seeking a path. Because in the, in the ayah it said, that if there were deities, if there were the deities, they would have sought a path to Allah. What is meant by What is meant by this word? And so we return back to the Mufassirun and we see that basically there are two interpretations of this. There are two interpretations. The first interpretation is that what it means 
that they would seek a path towards Allah, it means that they would try to compete with Allah. That they would try to uh, compete with Him in His dominion. And try to overcome Him. And try to take control of His dominion. Right? This is the first meaning that some of the Mufassirun have mentioned. This is mentioned from Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, Al-Hasan, Sa'id bin Jubair, and uh, numerous others. So this is the first way that we can interpret that, you know, that, that, that word. Which would then mean, say that if there were other deities alongside him, as they claim, then they would have tried to contend and compete with him in his dominion. Right? This is the meaning if we take this particular interpretation. The second view is that ibtigha'u sabil seeking a path, it means that they would want to become close to Allah. This is at-taqarrub, at-taqarrub, and at-tazalluf. Right? This is wanting to be close to Allah, seek nearness to Him, wanting to worship Him. So now in this view, and this view is also said from uh, Qatada, Mujahid, and others from the Mufassirun. So upon this view, this would then mean that if there were other deities alongside Allah, those deities themselves would have sought a means of nearness to Allah. They themselves would have wanted to, to, to worship Allah. Right? So this upon this interpretation, this then um, uh, this then means uh, this is like another angle that is mentioned by some of the uh, Mufassirun and uh, some of the scholars they prefer the first view, some of the scholars prefer the second view. And as you can see, the, you know, there's evidence for both sides. Uh, the Mufassirun held both views. And what the, the conclusion that we come to is that both of these angles are strong. And so we need to extract what is the argument from, 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 from these explanations. Well, the argument is like this. This is the argument. First of all, this verse is refuting shirk. Right? It's a refutation of people who are worshipping other deities alongside Allah. So this now is connected to uluhiyah. And so Allah is saying that if there were other deities which you worship alongside Allah, which deserve to be worshipped, if they deserve to be worshipped, then they would have been described with rububiyyah. With rububiyyah. And if they were described with rububiyyah, and they tried to contend with Allah, and compete with Allah, you would have seen in the creation, ruin. The creation would have been ruined. There would be conflict in the creation. There would be, things would not, you know, uh, work upon the order and the regularity. There, there would be conflict. Right? So this is the line of argument if you follow the argument. Right? So let's go through that once again in the verse. If there were other deities alongside Allah, as you people claim, and these deities deserve to be worshipped, if they actually did deserve to be worshipped truthfully, then by necessity they would have qualities of rububiyyah. By necessity. And if they had qualities of rububiyyah, that basically that they had qualities of rububiyyah, of, of creating, owning, whatever, then they would have tried to contend with Allah Azza wa Jal. 
And if that was the case, then you would have seen in the creation there would be conflict and turmoil. And there wouldn't be the order and the regularity and everything that we see, everything is just so smooth. You wouldn't see this. But because we do not see this, then your argument is false. These things are not deities alongside Allah. Right? So do you understand that line, that line of argument? This is the line of reasoning and the line of argument. And you can see how it's an argument for the uluhiyah of Allah, but it incorporates the issue of rububiyyah. This is what we mean. That often in the Quran, the argument is pertaining to Allah's uluhiyah. But the argument itself also incorporates by inclusion, by at-tadammun, by inclusion, the, 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 the rububiyah of Allah. Why? Because these two things are binding to each other. Right? So this is the basic line of argument. And so this verse, uh, in fact, Imam al-Sa'di, he indicates this particular meaning. And in fact, he gives both uh, explanations. I'll just read from his speech. So he says regarding this ayah, uh, from the evidences to show that Allah uh, that he alone has the right to be worshipped, and for this asal of tawheed, is وَمِنَ الْأَدِلَّةِ وَمِنَ الْأَدِلَّةِ عَلَى ذَلِكَ هَذَا الدَّلِيلَ الْأَقْلِ الَّذِي ذَكْرَهُ هُنَا So from the evidences of this meaning of Tawheed is this argument of reason, this rational evidence, which he mentioned here. فَقَالْ قُلْ Say, O Messenger, to the, to, لِلْمُشْرِكِينَ To the pagans. الَّذِينَ يَجْعَلُونَ مَعَ اللَّهِ إِلَهًا آخَرٍ Those who make for Allah another deity. لَوْ كَانَ مَعَهُ آلِهَةٌ كَمَا يَقُولُونَ If there was for him, other deities, as they say, then they would have certainly sought a path towards the owner of the throne. Meaning, they would have taken a path towards Allah's worship and repenting to him, becoming close to him, seeking nearness to him. So how can you take something as an object of worship which itself is wanting to seek nearness and wanting to worship Allah. This is from the greatest of dhul. So obviously this now is the second interpretation, right, that we mentioned. But then Asadi also mentions that, uh, that it can also have the meaning, the meaning can also be that if there were other deities alongside Allah, لَطَلَبُوا السَّبِيلِ وَسَعُوا فِي مُغَالَبَةِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى then they would have tried to find a way to Allah and overcome Allah and overwhelm Allah. And if that was the case, so either they would overwhelm him, and so therefore they, you know, they would try to overwhelm him, so either he would dominate them or they would do- do- dominate him. Right? But because we don't see, then he continues to mention the argument as, as, as I mentioned, that because we don't see this, then it is clearly the case that there are no other deities with Allah. There are no other deities with Allah, because we, we don't see that there should be other deities with Allah. Right? So this is the basic argument from this particular ayah, which establishes that there is only one Lord who is described with al-khalq, al-tadbir, al-mulk, al-ihya, wal-imata, like giving life, taking life, there is only one Lord. So is that evidence clear to everybody? Is that clear? The, the nature of the evidence, the nature of the argument. Okay, that's good. Now let's move to the second ayah in the Quran. The second ayah in the Quran 
is the statement of Allah Azawajal in Surah Al-Anbiya, لَوْ كَانَ فِيهِمَا آلِهَةٌ إِلَّا اللَّهِ لَفَسَدَتَا Surah Al-Anbiya 21 verse number 22. لَوْ كَانَ فِيهِمَا آلِهَةٌ إِلَّا اللَّهِ لَفَسَدَتَا فَسُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ فَسُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَرْشِ عَمَّا يَصِفُونَ If there had been therein, meaning within the heavens and the earth, deities other than Allah, or if there had been deities except Allah, then they would have become corrupt, meaning the heaven and the earth would fall into ruin and would become corrupt. فَسُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَرْشِ عَمَّا يَسِفُونَ So, glorified be Allah, the Lord of the throne, from that which they described. Right? So this now is at the beginning of Surah Al-Anbiya. Once again, what is the context of this verse? What is this verse speaking about? And so we see that generally in this ayah, at the beginning of Surah Al-Anbiya, we see that Allah Azza wa Jal, He, at the beginning, uh, He mentions that the creation is not created without purpose. It's not created just for play and pastime. He denies that. And, uh, you know, there's a threat upon the disbelievers for, you know, having a recompense for their deeds and, you know, for describing Allah with deficiencies. And likewise, Allah explains how He created the creation and all the creation is subject to Him and how the angels, they praise Him and glorify Him all the time. All of these things are mentioned first. And then comes the mention of deities. Have they taken deities from, from, from the earth? You know, which they which they and then comes the ayah. So in order to understand this argument now, we have to understand what is the meaning of La fasadata. Because this is crucial to understanding the argument. La fasadata. That the heaven and the earth would become in ruins or corrupt. So just like in the first verse that we looked at, knowing the meaning of Ida la batagaw, you know, the, they would have sought a nearness to the, to the Lord of the, of the throne, the possessor of the throne, the Sabil. Then likewise, in this ayah, what is the meaning of la fasadata? That they would become uh, ruined or corruption in, in corruption. So the general argument then here is, it would be uh, based upon the meaning of the corruption here. The scholars they have a number of explanations of what is meant by ruin. The first of those views is that it is the the corruption of the people of the heavens and the earth, the inhabitants of the heavens and the earth. And so this is mentioned by Al-Tabari and others. Right? So it would mean that if there were other deities alongside him, then the people of the heavens and the earth would become corrupt. The second view is that the fasad, the corruption being referred to here, is the corruption that arises from worshipping other than Allah. The corruption arising from shirk. This is the view of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah Rahimahullah ta'ala. So this is on the basis that Tawheed rectifies people. Tawheed rectifies people, corrects their affairs, 
And what opposes it of shirk, in which there are other deities, it corrupts, it brings about corruption, you know, on, uh, you know, on the basis of others being worshipped besides Allah Azza wa Jal. And this is a second view. And the third view is that the corruption being spoken of here is that the actual physical, like the, the, the heavens and the earth, the actual order which exists in the heavens, in the, uh, heavens and the earth, and the way things work, the causes and the effects, that there would be corruption in that as well. There would be corruption in that as well. And uh, this, is, this is actually uh, a minority view, and it's not the, the strong view, but the first two views are the strong views, which are the most correct views. And so the meaning then therefore would be, the meaning... Uh, based upon this, so the basic argument would be that uh, that if there were other deities alongside Allah and others were worshipped alongside Allah then this would mean this would mean a corruption would take place in you know in in the in, in the heavens and the earth, and uh, the, the heavens and the earth wouldn't be the same as what it is, what we see it to be. And this is similar to the argument that was used in the first in, in the first verse that we looked at. So, so to summarize the argument, is like this: that there is only one wahid, it is Allah. And there is only one who is able and powerful over every other thing. And uh, therefore the uluhiyah of everything besides Allah is negated and denied. Because those other deities would be unable to establish and run the heaven and the earth. That would lead to the corruption of the heaven and the earth. That if there were other deities alongside Allah, besides Allah then the heavens and the earth would be corrupt. And this is because multiple deities, if there, if, there, if there are multiple deities, each deity or each lord creating its own or regulating its own part of the, of, of, of the universe, then it would fall into corruption, it would fall into ruin. And uh, this is what Sheikh Abdurrahman Asadi explains with the same with the same meaning that this will lead to the corruption of the heaven and the earth in its running. And likewise, in terms of worship, if you're worshiping other deities besides Allah, then the people likewise they too would become corrupt as well, right? Because you know, this is the law in Allah's Allah's creation. So you can see how these meanings uh, they come together and they have a similar argument or a similar meaning to the uh, first verse which is that if there were other deities worshipped alongside Allah, then that worship it would return corruption upon the heavens and the earth, like in a general, in a general sense. So we see the same thing, that the argument is for the uluhiyah of Allah, but by inclusion, it indicates the rububiyah of Allah Azza wa Jal. Right? So this now is a proof that there are not multiple deities, that there is only one deity who is truly worthy of worship. And that is known by the fact that everything, there is no corruption or disorder in the heavens and the earth, everything is uniform, regular, you know, th there's nothing of that, of, the, of that sort. 
And so this proves that there is only one Lord who creates, owns, provides, sustains, gives life, takes life, created everything, the causes and effects, everything works uniformly. So this type of argument is again, is similar to the first verse. The verse is really about uluhiyya, but at the same time it has a proof for the rububiyya of Allah, for tawheed the rububiyya, by way of at-tadammun, by way of inclusion. This now leads us to the third and final verse, and this verse is different from the first two, because this verse now is clearly speaking about rububiyya, unlike the first two verses. So this verse is the statement of Allah Azawajal, uh, this is in Surah Al-Mu'minun, Surah 23, verses 91 to 92. And here Allah Azawajal, he says, So the rough translation of this verse is, that Allah has not taken any son, and nor is there any ilah with him. If there had been, then each deity, each ilah, would have taken what it created. And some of them would have tried to dominate others. So each deity would have tried to dominate another deity. And then Allah he frees himself, Subhanallah Amma Yasifun. Glorified is Allah from that which they describe. He is the knower of the unseen and what is seen. Exalted is he from that which they commit with him in shirk. So as you can see, this verse now is very, very clear in indicating Tawheed of Rububiyyah and indicating the impossibility of multiple you know deities or multiple lords. Because here, the things that Allah mentioned are clearly affairs of to do with creation. Right? Every deity would have taken what it itself created for itself, and every deity would try to overwhelm and dominate the other deity. Right? This is what would have taken place. So this verse then, unlike the first two verses, which in their context they are to establish Allah this verse now is different in that it is clearly speaking about the rububiyyah of Allah Azza wa Jal. Now when the scholars, when they looked at this verse, and they looked at how this verse, how is it an evidence that there is that only Allah is the Rabb, the creator, the provider, the owner, the sustainer, the one who gives life, takes life. How is this verse an evidence? And so there are two angles of evidence from this verse, and they are mentioned by Shaykh al-Islam, Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala. So, and obviously, because there are two parts to the to, 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 uh, two uh, parts to the verse, one which says that every deity would have taken its part of its its creation. That's one argument. And the second part is that each of these deities would have tried to overwhelm and dominate each other. Right. So there are two things mentioned in the verse. Therefore, there are two indications and two arguments in the verse. So as for the first, then basically that if there were other deities alongside Allah. And those deities clearly have the qualities of rububiyyah, of creating, and so on and so forth. Then each deity would have taken what it created. What it created. But from what we observe, we see clearly this is not the case. 
Right? In other words, let's say in the creation of Allah, one deity or one creator created something, one heaven, and another deity created, you know, the ocean, another deity created something else. Right? All these deities, all creating, right? Each deity would have taken its own creation, what it created itself. And as a consequence of that, then you would see great corruption upon the, you know, upon the earth. You would see variation, difference, corruption, things like that. But we see nothing of this at all. When we look in the creation of Allah, we see perfection everywhere in the sky. There are no rifts. We see everything working together as a whole. Everything is connected. The causes and effects, they can only come from one creator. Why? Because everything works as a complete whole. Like we mentioned before, you have the sun, it provides light, the energy, which allows plants to grow. Right, The plants grow, they provide food for, for animals. Those animals eat from the plants, they provide food for humans and milk and whatever else. Right, And then we, we eat and we breathe out, we breathe out carbon dioxide, that then goes and benefits the plants. Right, So you see, at every level, the whole of the creation... All of it is tied and works together through causes and effects. And this can only be from a single Lord and a single creator. If there were multiple deities, meaning multiple creators, then we would see every creator taking and, uh, you know, monopolizing and taking its own part of its whatever it created. But clearly we don't see this. Reality is not like this. And so therefore, this is clearly an evidence that there are not multiple deities alongside Allah. Right? So this is a proof of Tawheed al-Uluhiyyah, even though the words mentioned are clearly in relation to Rububiyyah. Do you understand? In the other two verses, it's working from the angle of Uluhiyyah, including Rububiyyah. Here is from the angle of Rububiyyah, which established that there can't be Uluhiyyah for other than Allah. Do you understand the argument there? Yeah? So, so this is the explanation of the first part of the, of the, uh, of the verse. And so we see that if there were other deities alongside Allah, then we would have known that there would be, uh, you know, this type of corruption, that, you know, which clearly we, we do not see. We do not actually see any of this in the whole of the creation at all. The second angle from this verse is the statement of Allah Then, if there were many deities with Allah, then they would try to dominate each other. They would try to overwhelm or dominate each other. So, uh, the argument here now then is that if you had deities which are equal to each other in every respect um, if there were other if, if, there, if there were other deities alongside Allah then they would have to be equal in qudra in ability because if one was less in ability then clearly that one can't be an ilah they would have to be equal exactly equal so th- say there was another deity alongside Allah they would have to be exactly equal in their ability if one was more able than, than the other, then the other one wouldn't, wouldn't be a deity, right? So if they're exactly equal, then if one will to do one thing, but the other one didn't will to do that thing, 
then there would be conflict. Right? There would be conflict. If one's irada was for one thing and, and the other one's irada was for something else, then nothing would take place, nothing would happen. Right? There would be a conflict. But again, that is clearly what we do not see. We do not see that at all. And if that was the case, nothing would really happen or occur. But contrary to that, we see the creation of Allah and the way it is and uh, you know, the, the, everything works as, as we said before. There's only one master, one Lord behind it all and there isn't any conflict or there isn't any domination or attempts you know, like you see amongst the kings of the world. What do the kings of the world do? You see one country, one nation tries to overtake other nations, dominate other nations, right? Civilize, civilization, they come and they go. Right, they try to dominate. So you see, this is what you see upon the earth, right? And you see all this corruption resulting from their actions. Do you see that in the create, meaning in the actual what Allah has created, of the heavens and the earth, and the sun and the moon, the alternation of the night and the day, and everything else from all the causes and the effects? Are there any conflicts therein? Is there any corruption therein? Does something stop working all of a sudden? Right? Do you understand? Right? We don't see any of that. And that's because there are no deities competing with each other. Because there are no deities to begin with. Because it's false. Right? So, so this therefore is a proof that there is only one Lord, one Rabb, who alone is worthy of worship. Because of the, of the complete absence of what we, what we would expect to see had there been multiple you know, lords, multiple uh, deities. Right? And so... This, this is the argument, the second proof that is in this particular verse, that if there was other uh, you know, deities, if there were other lords, this is what they would be doing. They would be trying to dominate each other. And the resulting corruption that we would have seen from that, which we clearly do not see at all. So, these are the three verses in the Qur'an. And you can see there's a pattern in all of these verses. You see that in all of them, uh, you can see that Allah immediately exonerates himself. Subhanallah. Subhanallah yamma yasifun. In all of these three passages, you see the word Subhanallah. Subhanallah yamma yasifun. And uh, Allah mentions his qualities. Alam al-Ghaybi was shahada. He mentions that he is the Lord of the throne. As happened in the first two verses. The throne is mentioned in the first two verses. Right? So these are the three verses then. I hope that the argument is very, very clear and apparent. And you can see that in the first two verses, it's the argument is about uluhiyah of Allah, but by inclusion, it is an argument for the Rububi of Allah as well. Right? And in the third verse, it is speaking about qualities which are from the uluhiyah, which are from, the, sorry, which are from the qualities of Rububiyyah, which is creating something and dominating something. Right? Overwhelming something. And so Allah mentioned these two things, that if... There were other deities alongside Allah. Each thing would have taken its own part of the creation. Or they would have tried to dominate each other. Right? But this clearly is not the case that we see in the creation of Allah. Everything is exactly as it is, working in order, uniformly, regularly. Right? There's nothing of that sort. Which means that there are no other deities alongside Allah. And He alone is the Lord, the provider, the sustainer, and so on, and so on, and so forth. Right? So these arguments come then after we have established the existence of Allah Azawajal. So I hope all of that is very, very clear. And uh, this is Surah Al-Mu'minun, verses 91 to 92.
23 verses 91 to 92. So there we'll conclude our, our lesson there. We'll finish with one point which is uh, also worthy of mention, which is that although, although there are these three verses that we specifically uh, mentioned here, in general, all of the verses that speak about Allah's rububiyyah, uh, they at the same time are also proof that He alone is the Lord, right? So all the other verses of rububiyyah that mention you know, Allah's actions of giving life, taking life, uh, creating and so on and so forth, they are also uh, a proof for the Rabubi of Allah because obviously he's the creator of those things, he's the owner of those things. So in a general sense, those ayat are a proof that he alone is the Lord. Right? So they are an evidence for Tawhid al-Rububiya. But these three specific verses, uh, the other ones that the scholars have looked at as the, the specific verses in which there is evidence for Tawheed al-Rububiya from a, from, a, from a point of view of reason. Right? So we'll conclude there, inshallah ta'ala, and in the next lesson next week, what we'll move on to is the next aspect of Tawheed, which is how does the Qur'an establish that Allah is perfect and completely free of any deficiencies. And this we know by way of his names and his attributes, his most beautiful names and his lofty attributes. And this is a huge topic, but you know we'll have to condense and summarize and see how does Allah indicate his perfection and absence of deficiencies. And some of the verses that we look at are very, very interesting uh, uh, you know, indications of this, inshallah. So we'll conclude and finish there, uh, and we'll continue uh, next week, inshallah. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.